Section four of a guide to Stoicism by St. George William Joseph Stock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four Ethic Part B The sphere of propriety was confined to things indifferent, so that they were proprieties which were common to the sage and the fool. It had to do with taking the things which were in accordance with nature and rejecting those that were not. Even the propriety of living or dying was determined not by reference to virtue or vice, but to the preponderance or deficiency of things in accordance with nature. It might thus be a propriety for the sage, in spite of his happiness, to depart from life of his own accord, and for the fool, notwithstanding his misery, to remain in it. Life being in itself indifferent, the whole question was one of opportunism. Wisdom might prompt the leaving herself, should occasion seem to call for it. We pass on now to another instance of accommodation. According to the high Stoic doctrine, there was no mean between virtue and vice. All men indeed received from nature the starting points for virtue, but until perfection had been attained they rested under the condemnation of vice. It was, to employ an illustration of the poet-philosopher Cleanthes, as though nature had begun an iambic line and left men to finish it. Until that was done, they were to wear the fool's cap. The peripatetics, on the other hand, recognized an intermediate state between virtue and vice, to which they gave the name of progress and proficience. Yet so entirely had the Stoics for practical purposes to accept this lower level, that the word proficience has come to be spoken of as though it were of Stoic origin. Seneca is fond of contrasting the sage with the proficient. The sage is like a man in the enjoyment of perfect health, but the proficient is like a man recovering from a severe illness, with whom an abatement of the paroxysm is equivalent to health, and who is always in danger of a relapse. It is the business of philosophy to provide for the needs of these weaker brethren. The proficient is still called a fool, but it is pointed out that he is a very different kind of fool from the rest. Further, proficients are arranged into three classes, in a way that reminds one of the technicalities of Calvinistic theology. First of all, there are those who are near wisdom, but, however near they may be to the door of heaven, they are still on the wrong side of it. According to some doctors, these were already safe from backsliding, differing from the sage only in not having yet realized that they had attained to knowledge. Other authorities, however, refused to admit this, and regarded the first class as being exempt only from settled diseases of the soul, but not from passing attacks of passion. Thus did the Stoics differ among themselves as to the doctrine of final assurance. The second class consisted of those who had laid aside the worst diseases and passions of the soul, but might at any moment relapse into them. The third class was of those who had escaped one mental malady but not another, who had conquered lust, let us say, but not ambition, who disregarded death but dreaded pain. This third class, adds Seneca, is by no means to be despised. From these concessions to the weakness of humanity we now pass to the Stoic paradoxes, where we shall see their doctrine in its full rigor. It is perhaps these very paradoxes which account for the puzzled fascination with which Stoicism affected the mind of antiquity, just as obscurity in a poet may prove a surer passport to fame than more strictly poetical merits. 
The root of Stoicism being a paradox, it is not surprising that the offshoots should be so too. To say that virtue is the highest good is a proposition to which every one who aspires to the spiritual life must yield assent with his lips, even if he has not yet learned to believe it in his heart. But alter it into virtue is the only good, and by that slight change it becomes at once the teeming mother of paradoxes. By a paradox is meant that which runs counter to general opinion. Now it is quite certain that men have regarded, do regard, and we may safely add will regard, things as good which are not virtue. But if we grant this initial paradox, a great many others will follow along with it. As for instance that virtue is sufficient of itself for happiness. The fifth book of Cicero's Tusculan Disputations is an eloquent defense of this thesis, in which the orator combats the suggestion that a good man is not happy when he is being broken on the wheel. Another glaring paradox of the Stoics is that all faults are equal. They took their stand upon a mathematical conception of rectitude. An angle must be either a right angle or not, a line must be either straight or crooked, so an act must be either right or wrong. There is no mean between the two, and there are no degrees of either. To sin is to cross the line. When once that has been done, it makes no difference to the offense how far you go. Trespassing at all is forbidden. This doctrine was defended by the Stoics on account of its bracing moral effect, as showing the heinousness of sin. Horace gives the judgment of the world in saying that common sense and morality, to say nothing of utility, revolt against it. Here are some other specimens of the Stoic paradoxes. Every fool is mad. Only the sage is free, and every fool is a slave. The sage alone is wealthy. Good men are always happy, and bad men always miserable. All goods are equal. No one is wiser or happier than another. But may not one man, we ask, be more nearly wise or more nearly happy than another? That may be, the Stoics would reply. But the man who is only one stayed from Canopus is as much not in Canopus as the man who is a hundred stades off and the eight-day-old puppy is still as blind as on the day of its birth, nor can a man who is near the surface of the sea breathe any more than if he were full five hundred fathom down. It is only fair to the Stoics to add that paradoxes were quite the order of the day in Greece, though they greatly outdid other schools in producing them. Socrates himself was the father of paradox. Epicurus maintained as staunchly as any Stoic that no wise man is unhappy, and, if he be not belied, went the length of declaring that the wise man, if put into the bull of Phalaris, would exclaim, How delightful! How little I mind this! It is out of keeping with common sense to draw a hard and fast distinction between good and bad, yet this was what the Stoics did. They insisted on effecting here and now that separation between the sheep and the goats, which Christ postponed to the day of judgment. Unfortunately, when it came to practice, all were found to be goats, so that the division was a merely formal one. The good man of the Stoics was variously known as the sage, or the serious man, the latter name being inherited from the peripatetics. We used to hear it said among ourselves that a person had become serious when he or she had taken to religion. 
Another appellation which the Stoics had for the sage was the urbane man, while the fool in contradistinction was called a boor. Boorishness was defined as an inexperience of the customs and laws of the state. By the state was meant not Athens or Sparta, as would have been the case in a former age, but the society of all rational beings into which the Stoics spiritualized the state. The sage alone had the freedom of this city, and the fool was therefore not only a boor, but an alien or an exile. In this city justice was natural and not conventional, for the law by which it was governed was the law of right reason. The law then was spiritualized by the Stoics, just as the state was. It no longer meant the enactments of this or that community, but the mandates of the eternal reason which ruled the world, and which would prevail in the ideal state. Law was defined as right reason commanding what was to be done and forbidding what was not to be done. As such, it in no way differed from the impulse of the sage himself. As a member of a state, and by nature subject to law, man was essentially a social being. Between all the wise there existed unanimity, which was a knowledge of the common good, because their views of life were harmonious. Fools, on the other hand, whose views of life were discordant, were enemies to one another and bent on mutual injury. As a member of society, the sage would play his part in public life. Theoretically, this was always true, and practically he would do so, wherever the actual constitution made any tolerable approach to the ideal type. But, if the circumstances were such as to make it certain that his embarking on politics would be of no service to his country, and only a source of danger to himself, then he would refrain. The kind of constitution of which the Stoics most approved was a mixed government containing democratic, aristocratic, and monarchical elements. Where circumstances allowed, the sage would act as legislator, and would educate mankind. One way of doing which was by writing books which would prove of profit to the reader. As a member of existing society, the sage would marry and beget children, both for his own sake and for that of his country on behalf of which, if it were good, he would be ready to suffer and die. Still he would look forward to a better time when, in Zeno's, as in Plato's Republic, the wise would have women and children in common, when the elders would love all the rising generation equally with parental fondness, and when marital jealousy would be no more. As being essentially a social being, the sage was endowed not only with the graver political virtues, but also with the graces of life. He was sociable, tactful and stimulating, using conversation as a means for promoting goodwill and friendship. So far as might be, he was all things to all men, which made him fascinating and charming, insinuating and even wily. He knew how to hit the point and to choose the right moment, yet with it all he was plain and unostentatious and simple and unaffected. In particular, he never delighted in irony, much less in sarcasm. From the social characteristics of the sage, we turn now to a side of his character which appears eminently antisocial. One of his most highly vaunted characteristics was his self-sufficingness. He was to be able to step out of a burning city, coming from the wreck not only of his fortunes but of his friends and family, and to declare with a smile that he had lost nothing. All that he truly cared for was to be centered in himself. Only thus could he be sure that fortune would not wrest it from him. The apathy or passionlessness of the sage is another of his most salient features. 
the passions being, on Zeno's showing, not natural, but forms of disease, the sage, as being the perfect man, would of course be wholly free from them. They were so many disturbances of the even flow in which his bliss lay. The sage, therefore, would never be moved by a feeling of favour towards any one. He would never pardon a fault. He would never feel pity. He would never be prevailed upon by entreaty. He would never be stirred to anger. As to the absence of pity in the sage, the Stoics themselves must have felt some difficulty there, since we find Epictetus recommending his hearers to show grief out of sympathy for another, but to be careful not to feel it. The inexorability of the sage was a mere consequence of his calm reasonableness, which would lead him to take the right view from the first. Lastly, the sage would never be stirred to anger for why should it stir his anger to see another in his ignorance injuring himself? One more touch has yet to be added to the apathy of the sage. He was impervious to wonder. No miracle of nature could excite his astonishment. No mephitic caverns, which men deemed the mouths of hell, no deep-drawn ebb-tides, the standing marvel of the Mediterranean dweller, no hot springs, no spouting jets of fire. From the absence of passion it is but a step to the absence of error. So we pass now to the infallibility of the sage, a monstrous doctrine which was never broached in the schools before Zeno. The sage, it was maintained, held no opinions. He never repented of his conduct. He was never deceived in anything. Between the daylight of knowledge and darkness of nescience, Plato had interposed the twilight of opinion, wherein men walked for the most part. Not so, however, the Stoic sage. Of him it might be said, as Charles Lamb said of the Scotchman, with whom he so imperfectly sympathized, his understanding is always at its meridian. You never see the first dawn, the early streaks. He has no falterings of self-suspicion, surmises, guesses, misgivings, half-intuitions, semi-consciousness, partial illuminations, dim instincts, embryo conceptions, have no place in his brain or vocabulary. The twilight of dubiety never falls upon him. Opinion, whether in the form of an ungripped assent or a weak supposition, was alien from the mental disposition of the serious man. With him there was no hasty or premature assent of the understanding, no forgetfulness, no distrust. He never allowed himself to be overreached or deluded, never had need of an arbiter, never was out in his reckoning, nor put out by another. No urbane man ever wandered from his way, or missed his mark, or saw wrong, or heard amiss, or erred in any of his senses. He never conjectured, nor thought of a better thing, for the one was a form of imperfect assent, and the other a sign of previous precipitancy. There was with him no change, no retraction, and no tripping. These things were for those whose dogmas could alter. After this it is almost superfluous for us to be assured that the sage never got drunk. Drunkenness, as Zeno pointed out, involved babbling, and of that the sage would never be guilty. He would not, however, altogether eschew banquets. Indeed, the Stoics recognized a virtue under the name of conviviality, which consisted in the proper conduct of them. It was said of Chrysippus that his demeanor was always quiet, even if his gait were unsteady so that his housekeeper declared that only his legs were drunk. There were pleasantries even within the school on this subject of infallibility of the sage. Aristo of Chios, while seceding on some other matters, 
held fast to the dogma that the sage never opined. Whereupon Perseus played a trick upon him. He made one of two twin brothers deposit a sum of money with him, and the other call to reclaim it. The success of the trick, however, only went to establish that Aristo was not the sage, an admission which each of the Stoics seems to have been ready enough to make on his own part, as the responsibilities of the position were so fatiguing. There remains one more leading characteristic of the sage, the most striking of them all, and the most important from the ethical point of view. This was his innocence or harmlessness. He would not harm others, and was not to be harmed by them. For the Stoics believed with Socrates that it was not permissible by the divine law for a better man to be harmed by a worse. You could not harm the sage any more than you could harm the sunlight. He was in our world, but not of it. There was no possibility of evil for him, save in his own will, and that you could not touch. And as the sage was beyond harm, so also was he above insult. Men might disgrace themselves by their insolent attitude towards his mild majesty, but it was not in their power to disgrace him. As the Stoics had their analogue to the tenet of final assurance, so had they also to that of sudden conversion. They held that a man might become a sage without being at first aware of it. The abruptness of the transition from folly to wisdom was in keeping with their principle that there was no medium between the two, but it was naturally a point which attracted the strictures of their opponents. That a man should be at one moment stupid, and ignorant, and unjust, and intemperate, a slave and poor, and destitute, at the next a king, rich and prosperous, temperate and just, secure in his judgments, and exempt from error, was a transformation, they declared, which smacked more of the fairy-tales of the nursery than of the doctrines of a sober philosophy. End of section 4